part of our service, um, we look to God's word and and it's crucial to, and it's at the core of our worship that we listen under his word, under his teaching. And you might wonder, why, why uh, preaching? Why are sermons in, in the church? You know, it's, it's not like a lecture, like in your college, or it's not like a TED talk or a presentation. It is far more than that. It is speaking to our souls. It's speaking to our, our spiritual uh, being. And it's, so it's, it's not just, I'm not here to just give you um, a technical presentation or just reading through it. Um, I'm, I'm his mouthpiece, and uh, I'm asking God now to, to have his blessing on me and on us as we listen. I'm not standing here on my own authority. Um, it is his, it is his word, and if, if nothing else, you hear what he has to say um, rather than me. So let, let's pray uh, at first, and then we, we delve into our passage. Abba Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, your your sovereign uh, rule, as Shane reminded us, uh, nothing, nothing is out of your control. But Lord, we live our lives in faith uh, on you who knows all things and who controls all things. And so, Lord, for, for today, may you speak to us, encourage our hearts, convict our hearts, and change, transform our lives until the day of Christ when he brings us all to glory. And so, Lord, um, bless me now as I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. So our passage this morning is in Philippians chapter 2. I'm just uh, chuckling to myself when I found out that I've been allocated this this passage because um, there's a bit of history. My my very first sermon uh, in Douglas Baptist Church was in this very passage, and and it just happens to be that way, and I'm just, you know, maybe it's God's providence. Uh, maybe he's given me another chance for round two, and uh, maybe improvements to it. And, and uh, you know, maybe uh, over over the years, I've, I've gotten a little bit better by his grace to, to exposit his word. But um, it's not about me. Um, it's his word. And so let's, let's look at chapter 2, verse uh, 12. Now, just a bit of background. Paul, when writing this letter, is under house arrest. He's probably chained to a, a Roman guard 24-7. And so he's, he's confined to this place and he's writing this or possibly dictating this to a scribe um, as a response to uh, the church in Philippi for their generosity. And he's going to send this letter with Epaphroditus back to them. And he is awaiting trial. Uh, he's under, under house arrest because he's going to be on trial on Caesar's court to be uh, decided on his uh, verdict his crimes uh, being uh, proclaiming the gospel, right? Proclaiming a new Lord um, that is another uh, a threat to Caesar. And, and so he's writing this letter to encourage the Philippian believers and to admonish them. Um, and we pick up from verse 12. Let's read it. Therefore, he says, my dear friends, or therefore my beloved. Now, when we see the word therefore, we can't ignore the passage before that comes this because... It's directly alluding to that. And I get the bit that it says, now do this. Steve has taken us uh, last two weeks ago on the passage that Paul is alluding to. And just very briefly, um, he's saying that this, uh, uh, this has implications on what we are to do next. And what was the previous passage and what did that talk about? Paul talked about the great example of Jesus, his great humility and his great obedience. Obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And I love the way uh, Steve put it to us uh, last time. He said, no one is more humble than Christ and no one is more exalted than Christ. And it goes um, with what God says, you know, I will um, humble the proud, but I will exalt those who are humble. And Jesus was the most humble of us. And therefore, it's on that um, that that Paul uh, talks to us uh, next. And it's applicable to us, uh, to them then, and it's applicable to us now. So God is speaking to his church today. And he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. And so Paul acknowledges the Philippians' uh, continual obedience. Even now, you've always obeyed. And what did they obey? Um, the Lord, before he ascended, he gave us a great commission. It says, go in all to the rest of the world, um, teaching them, baptizing them and to obey my commands. And, and this is what they've been obeying. They've been obedient to the gospel message. They've been obedient to Paul's teachings and to the traditions that our Lord has, has imparted on us. And so he's encouraging them, keep on going. He admonishes them and says, keep on doing, uh, keep more of that. I'm, I'm delighted to hear that and keep on uh, doing what you've been doing. Keep up the good work is the sense you get here. And especially when I'm not there, he says, continue to work out your salvation. And he says this not only when I'm there uh, physically, not only in my presence, but continue even when I'm not. He says, um, be sure to be consistent in that and don't only do it when, when I'm around. Um, and so... He says a similar thing in another church, in a church in Thessalonica, when he says this in chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And it's the same sense. You've been doing this. I'm encouraged to hear it. Keep on doing. And we can't ever go wrong in just doing more of what we've already been doing. And so if, if that's the case for us here, I think Paul is encouraging us to keep on doing what we've been doing, keep on obeying. Now, I must admit I, I've had to resign to the commentaries and the scholars um, on what they say on this line uh, when he says here in verse 12, um, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so I'd had to uh, wrestle with that line and, and to properly handle it and so that I, I don't misinterpret it because uh, that little line has been misinterpreted so many times differently, not necessarily wrong, differently, but, but sometimes erroneously as well. So um, to put it simply and plainly to you, it's saying, okay, work the salvation that is in you to the outside. Um, in other words, he's talking about living a life on the outside that is consistent with the work that God has done in you on the inside. You have received it already, uh, freely. Now work it, work it out with fear and trembling. And that's one of the more consistent uh, interpretation of that. It's not to say, so he's saying, He's calling for a godly life, okay? He's calling for righteous behavior. So it doesn't mean work for your salvation. It doesn't mean put all this effort to, to earn it. You don't earn your salvation because that would be contrary to what the whole scripture says and to 
what the gospel says. It is not earned, it is given, uh, it is by grace only, true faith. We see that in Ephesians 2 when it says, uh, you have been saved by grace, true faith. And in, in, in the same way he already said this in verse 27 of chapter 1 in this letter, he says, Philippians, you should conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So just be consistent with what God has done in your life inwardly and bring that transformation out. Live it out. And so to put it simply, continue to obey, continue to live out, practice, demonstrate, exhibit the salvation which you already have in Christ. And to do this with what? With fear and trembling. Now fear, not a fear of being doomed to eternal torment, nor a hopeless dread of judgment uh, that leads to despair. That's not the kind of fear, uh, not in shaking in your boots fear. It rather means a reverential fear, uh, a holy concern to give God the honor he deserves. And this kind of fear, such fear protects us from temptation and this fear protects us from sin. It gives motivation and uh, for obedient and righteous living. And I think it's good to have this at the core of our Christian living, this fear of God. And Proverbs um, talks about this kind of fear. And it says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so there's this direct correlation of wise living and the fear of God. And so you can't say to me that you're living a wise uh, life, uh, being wise in, in your uh, living, if you're not, if you don't have this fear. Because a lot of us might, might confuse that and say, I'm, I'm living wisely. I'm conscientious about my actions. I'm concerned for the environment. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I'm an upright citizen. You might call that wise, but biblically speaking, without the fear of the Lord... God would call it foolish. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. And if there's no God, there's no fear of the Lord, how could your living be any way upright, right? So again, you know, um, just, just to be conscious on how we define wise living. And so fear and trembling, uh, he says, trembling, when we, when we tremble at the prospect of disobedience, our salvation shows up on the outside. And this is the kind of attitude that we are to uh, continue in obedience. And <clears throat> it also means that we are putting this in its right place. We are to take this very, very seriously. Um, let's, let's consider it in its sacred um, place, to live in obedience. It's not just a lifestyle add-on, this being a Christian. It is the core of our living, um, this uh, fear of God and how, how we perceive Him. And what does God look for? In, in Isaiah 66, it says, to this, to this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the kind of people He's looking for. And that should be um, what Paul says the Philippian church should be, and that's what God says to us now, that the people we are to be should be. And we are to take this seriously. We don't uh, live righteously. We don't have this righteous living um, so that we gratify ourselves for being on a higher moral ground and so look down on others condescendingly um, 
when, when they don't uh, stand up to, to the standard. We don't have this self-righteousness. That is self-righteousness when we have that attitude. And so when we have this proper view of God with fear and trembling, the result is uh, quite the opposite. It's the right attitude is simply uh, be humble in humility. And Jesus um, set that for us perfectly. He is, if anybody had the perfect right to, to exert his right and entitlement, it would be Jesus. But no, he was humble to the point of death. And so we shouldn't be walking around lording over others how, how upright I am or whatever. Our attitude should be of humility. And so this is the, that what verse 12 is telling us is that we are to continue to obey um, and to, t- to, to treat this very seriously and to, to have it in its proper place. And so we move on to verse 13. <clears throat> this is what uh, qualifies the whole thing, right? So it, it doesn't mean to work for your salvation because we don't work for it. Because Paul says, for it is God who works in you. So God has already worked on the inside, now in continual obedience, work it out on the outside. Um, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is him who enables this new living. The living for him and not for self, and the the living to serve others. He's the one who wills this, so we have all the right reasons and attitude to live our Christian lives obedient to him. Isn't that comforting to know? Doesn't that give you relief? That uh, in in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Aren't you glad and taken that burden off you when Jesus has done all the heavy lifting, so to speak, in our justification, in our salvation. And he's also doing, God is also doing the the heavy work in our day-to-day living. And he will bring it to completion. And so we can take rest in the fact that he is with us in this Christian life. He gives us sufficient grace daily um, to live for Him. And so don't be, you know, be burdened by having to put so much effort. Yes, we are called to give our all, but that is all underpinned by His uh, grace. He's the one carrying us. And it works out that that itself is the motivation to live uh, with more of our effort, more of our energy, because He's the one carrying us. And so... Um, that is what he says in verse 13. He qualifies that. And verse 14, if you look with me there, he then goes into the practical. He goes into the pragmatic, okay? And he issues this uh, commands. Do all things, in verse 14, without grumbling or disputing. In, in other translations, in the NIV, it says, do everything without complaining or arguing. It's quite a simple command, isn't it? It's a very simple command. There's no ambiguity. Uh, it's simple, but very uh, difficult, if you can all testify with me. Isn't it? It's simple, but difficult um, to live out. And if, you, if I ask you a question, what is the opposite of complaining and disputing with one another? What would be the antithesis or the, the opposite of that? Wouldn't the opposite of that unity um, this is, in a way, this is another way Paul is, is calling them and, and us, being united in Christ, to live a life in unity. Don't complain, don't argue, don't dispute. Um, he says this in verse 2, to be of the same mind, 
being one in spirit and purpose. And so if you're that, if you're one in mind and spirit and purpose, you're not going to complain, you're gonna, no, not going to argue and bicker amongst each other. And so you have this picture, would you call a set of siblings that are bickering united? No, not really. That's not really the picture of unity when, when you're bickering and, and um, you know, disputing and arguing with one another. I have this uh, memory. I remember my dad, um, as you know, I have two other brothers. I am the eldest of three boys, and so that makes me the favorite. And uh, you can just imagine um, that we all just got along in perfect harmony. The three boys, perfect harmony, peace all around, and serenity. No, it's uh, chaos, um, as you know with children and as you know with your own siblings. Um, when we were younger, we'd fight a lot of times. And always, admittedly, I, I was the bully. Um, I enjoyed, I was the source of pain and suffering for my brothers. Um, I enjoyed making my brothers cry. And when I say my brothers, I mean Aaron. Because <laughs> uh, typically, normally, me and Adrian would, would gang up on him. And it's just... It was awful. It's poor Aaron. If yeah, he's gonna listen to this and like that's true. Um, and then he'd, he'd go to our dad to, for a retribution, only to be punished along with us. So <laughs> I find that funny. Um, you know, he was just innocent, being there by himself, minding his own business, and we'd come along and disrupt all that. And at the end of the day, all three of us would be punished. And, and it's just I thought that was, was hilarious. And you can just imagine the the ruckus. And wailing in, in the Duan household. Um, but I remember this poster, um, which I think it's still there in my parents' house. A little picture of, uh, a little poster with picture of three little kittens, uh, cute and cuddly, sitting side by side to each other. I think that meant to represent us. And, uh, there's a little caption to that poster. And that caption is as a verse from Psalm 133. Uh, you can look to it if, if you want, but, 133 Sam, it says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. And you can almost read that with my dad saying it with hopeful longing. So he, there's, a, there's a bit of spin. He, he might change this to how I wish and how it would be super pleasant if, if these brothers live together in, in unity. And so God has been gracious. We've grown up, hopefully. We've matured and we've We've kind of don't do that anymore, I hope, and uh, we're, we're, we're united. Um, and so I just use that as an uh, illustration of this fighting and, and arguing. It, and so in the church, it could be the same thing. You know, we, it means no backbiting, no slandering, only wholesome talk, encouraging words. If rebuke, do it with gentleness and grace honoring one another and so on. These are like the pictures and the characteristics of what the church should be. All this under the umbrella of unity and uh, on being united. And But just as the reality of my family and the reality with my brothers, it's the same in our church family here. There, there can also be this reality of sin. The reality of sinners interacting with sinners. And you might say... I'm not like that. I'm generally easygoing and agreeable. I'm not the one to stir up trouble. I'm, I don't dispute with anybody. But if you add it up, all, uh, every argumentative, complaining, and frustrated word you spoke this week, uh, 
along with all the eye rolls, the disappointed sighs, the grumbling grunts, you would likely be shocked by how much time, uh, how much of your time is bound up in expressing dissatisfaction and discontent. And so let's not be, let's not fool ourselves that we're okay. Let's, let's be, um, super honed in as well because when there's a spirit of complaining, you know, there's a spirit of argument, that is not what call, uh, Paul is calling the church to be. And that's why the command is there. You know, he tells a command because he might know that that's, there's something happening. And later on in this letter, you know, there's a little bit of rebuke. And he says then, he issues the commands, um, don't, uh, do all things without grumbling and disputing. And that means do everything. So there's not one place where it's an exception. There's no exception. There's no uh, scenario that you are allowed to complain or even have a huff and puff. Um, you know, he's calling to the most, the most transcendent calling that, we, that there is. Everything, don't complain and don't uh, dispute. And why does he command this? And he gives us a reason, uh, multiple reasons actually, and why he commands this. Look at, with me in verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul gives us three clear uh, reasons why Paul uh, give this command. The number one reason, if you're taking notes, it's, uh, it's number one is for the sake of our own testimony. We have a testimony to uphold uh, individually and as a church. It is for our testimony that we should not have a pattern of complaining. There's no amount of tracts that you hand out, no amount of flyers to Christian events, no fish stickers at the back of our cars, no Christian music that we play that can make people think you're godly. People are a bit more tuned in than that if, if you can, uh, if you notice. There is a more accurate uh, measure of our testimony, and I got this from someone else's sermon, so I'm just going to quote it. He says, The presence or absence of a complaining spirit in your day-to-day life is likely a stronger testimony to be to those around you than the actual words that you say. Did you get that? I'll read it again. The presence or absence of a complaining spirit in your day-to-day life is likely a stronger testimony to others around you than the actual words you say. And I have been hit uh, with this recently, in the past, but more so recently. Um, I've got the, what you call, maybe psychiatrists and psychologists would call uh, the mirror tra- treatment, right? So a mirror treatment is when you, you reflect, you see, you, whatever you, you output, you know, let, let what happen, what's happened if you, if it, if it got turned uh, back to you. And so, um, I can say many Christian things, I can say many Bible things, but if my daily living um, is made up of sighs, grumbling, harsh responses uh, when asked to do something like take out the rubbish or do the laundry, those are more telling. And I'm guilty, and I need grace and mercy, both which God and my wife uh, gives me in abundance. So I'm thankful. <clears throat> and so we ought to be conscious of these things. These things, in, in, in taking into consideration our own testimony, these things should be foreign to us as children 
of God. Remember who you are. As God's children, we should resemble our father's traits. And so some might say, my son Mateo looks like me, or some might say, he looks like his mama. In the same way, he, uh, he has his parents' traits and characteristics. We should somewhat reflect our father. And so Paul is calling, just be conscious of who you are. You are children of God. You ought to be blameless and pure, blameless and innocent. <clears throat> so let's be above reproach. And so this inward transformation, make sure it's out the outside as well. Okay, so be consistent. And so the number two reason and why this uh, visible aspect is important is the number two reason is for the sake of the unsaved world. Okay, so look at me in the same verse. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. There is a context to where Paul says these things. There is a context to uh, where Paul says uh, sends this letter. And firstly, the context is in the church. He's addressing the church. But secondly, that church is also in the world. That is the context of the world. Amongst a society that does not fear God, and he says here, a crooked and twisted generation, we are called to be distinct and stand out from the world and so to witness to it. They are, after all, looking in on us and they're observing And we can't possibly make the slightest impact in the world if we, uh, if we live our lives very similar or closely to the way the world lives. There has to be this stark contrast. And how can we expect to attract people to the truth if our actions do not match what we say or what we preach? Um, He says here, shine like lights in the world, literally like stars. In the universe. And, you know, you can just imagine that perfect illustration of the stars and the dark backdrop of the universe. I remember uh, just, just nearly seven years ago today, um, I, I was, at this point, I was thinking in my head, I'm going to propose to Anne. You know, I'm going to marry her. And so what you need, you need a ring. And so I've been saving up, working, um, whatever. And then finally I went to the, the jeweler shop <coughs> up in town. And looking, shopping, and you can see it in the cabinet, all these lovely rings that I can't afford. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> but then when I uh, set up a meeting, they, they took me to this little section of, of, of their jewelry store and a special table. And uh, the woman there, she, she put this black velvet on the table, okay? And then she, she laid out the ones I, I might pick. And the reason she does that is to... And the diamonds, or the diamonds, <laughs> the, the rings... Small diamond, but (laughs) the rings that I saw in the cabinet all the more sparkled and twinkled when put into that black velvet. And so it makes it really shine true because it's dark. And so should be our lives. There should be this stark contrast that we literally shine forth from the darkness. And I love the way that uh, imagery takes me back to what Jesus says in Matthew let your light shine among others, uh, before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so, you know, shine like, um, like lamps. He says, um, don't hide it under a bowl, as Jesus would put it. And I believe this is our purpose. We have been given the light, the light of the world. Jesus has passed on this light so we too can shine and hold it up. And in verse 16, he says, 
we hold out the word of life. As we hold fast to the word of life. In the King James, it says, we hold forth this word. Um, which some scholars would say, it doesn't necessarily mean to hold fast to it, although we should totally do that. We should cling to the word. After all, it's our spiritual sustenance. But we hold it out. We hold forth the truth that transform lives. So as you continually obey, and as you shine like stars, we're doing this. So there's this... Um, dual thing and uh, that's going on that we have word and we have our lives and we have our action to show don't just tell people uh, Jesus can forgive you of your sins through his sacrifice on the cross without loving your neighbor that would be hypocrisy and likewise don't just live uh, apparently upright lives without giving the reason for which you live it many unbelievers believe it or not can show us up in upright and decent living we need to hold the two closely. We have a reason uh, to live. Um, this We have the gospel. We have his word. And our lives are emulating what it says here. So when, when someone uh, notices your, your good actions, we give a reason. And we don't just give a reason and not visibly show it. And so Paul is super concerned about the church's witness, and that is the reason. He says, do it for the sake of the unsaved world. Because as you do that, you know what happens? They get attracted to it. And that is the way they come to Jesus. We are just like beacons that point to the main light, to Jesus. And, and so that's why we do it. In our society right now, are we living upright uh, lives? Because we have a reason, and then we get, it gives us an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and how He has changed our lives. And so, uh, in, I'm thinking here for passage and exciting times for passage, going out as a church, we are to be a light and a beacon to this place. And so we, hopefully, all of passage people, God willing, will, will know that we are here and that we are, um, the light in this community. Not because of our own light, not, not because we're all righteous people. No, no. When they come here, we'll say, we are broken just as you are. But you know what the difference? We have been forgiven. Uh, we have been given grace. We are not uppity, high horse, high moral, looking down. Oh, look at you. No, no, no. I am just as broken as you. I am as sinful as you. But here is Jesus. And, and so, maintain that, okay? Let's not be pompous uh, about it. And, the third reason, I said three reasons, the third reason we see here is for Paul's sake. And I'm going to extend that and say for our leader's sake, for our church leader's sake. And what does Paul say? So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. And I'm just going to segue here a little bit on what the day of Christ is. This day of Christ, according to many scholars anyway, is different to the day of the Lord. So when you read your New Testament, you see the day of the Lord, and then you see a little bit uh, the day of Christ. And there's a, there's a difference. Um, generally, this um, day of the Lord refers to God's judgment. Okay, so on the, on the day of the Lord, like in 2 Peter, it says it will come like a thief. Okay, so it's the, the judgment, the wrath that is to come. But the, the day of Christ has, uh, if you consistently look it up, it's in the context of positive connotation for the believer and for the Christian. And it's also known as the judgment seat of Christ is where Jesus administer rewards in relation to how you lived your life here. So it's just the believer, uh, only for the believers. And I'm just going to give a few scriptures to, to back up this. Okay. Um, 
One is in Romans, Romans chapter 4, oh, 14, verse 10. If you can turn to it, if you want. Romans chapter 14, verse 10, it says, You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. So then, each of us will give an account to him of himself to God. And then the second verse I'm going to substantiate this with is in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, also verse 10. And it says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And those passages are in the context of addressing the believers. Now, some people might get uh, uncomfortable when I say the word rewards because Jesus has given us everything. He's given us eternal life and all the inheritance that is in Christ with him. And so what's this reward talk? And I I don't really know, I'm going to put up my hand, the ins and outs of this. I don't know the mechanism in which Jesus and the Word says about rewards, but I'm just going to say that it does mention it. And so you have this reward system. But I'm just going to go with James with his uh, good summary in this. Okay, In James it says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has appointed to those who love him. Persevere. Uh, Never mind whatever you can rack up. But at the same time, it's there. Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Um, You can even take this plainly as just be conscious of eternity, okay? As you live your life here on earth, which is very limited and temporal, there are eternal implications in what you do. And um, so this is not talking about the day of the Lord, which is heaven or hell judgment, okay? That's for unbelievers and believers alike. Have you put your trust in Jesus? You are saved. If you've rejected Him, well, there's a place for you. That's the day of the Lord. But this day of Christ is more like an evaluation um, because all believers are equally saved by grace. And I'm I'm just going to mention that because Paul mentions it, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud. And he puts it here simply, uh, he simply says, let me see you continuing to obey, shining like stars. Because on that day, I'll be proud and I have something to boast about. I'm going to boast about you on the day of Christ. It's like, um, see, it's like a parent. Okay. I'm a parent, but I'm, I'm too far away from, from a grown up kid who, who is in his graduation day or her graduation day, um, walks up the, the platform. You can see that, you know, have you seen those conferrings? The, the, the parents craning up with their, with their phones or whatever, take pictures of their child going to receive that degree, that parchment. That's, that's the pride that I think Paul is feeling. Let me see you there with the Lord, um, the Lord patting you in the back and saying, well done, good and faithful. And so we, we do this for the sake of our leaders. And I, I think if I can say for our leaders uh, right here, that um, they are longing for the same thing for us. And I'm sure Brendan and Shane look uh, long to see all of us there on that day of Christ. And so let's encourage them now. Let's encourage them now by, uh, in that their laboring is not in vain. Let them 
see in us, even right now, how we are to remain faithful and to continue to obey so that they'll be longing to see us on that day and they'll say, this is my reward to see. Um, it's like going to Jesus. Lord, look look who I brought with me. I'm so proud that I I have some, some people to bring to you. Um, and that is the sense in which Paul says here. And he even goes into the dramatic language in verse 17 as we close. <clears throat> Paul continues this uh, to express this in a more poetic language. He says, <clears throat> even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Um, I like the way Steve um, puts this when we were discussing this passage. He says, even if I, Paul, being, if I'm being spent for you, literally, even if I'm being spent on account of you, and you have this imagery of wine being poured out, you know, uh, on the sacrificial, sacrificial offering imagery, on account of your faith, it is so worth it. <clears throat> we know that Paul is awaiting trial, and that the outcome of this trial may have resulted in him being martyred. So he's not uh, excluding the possibility that he might, Caesar just goes, thumbs down, you're dead. Paul is considering that. Even the possibility of death, he says, even if I were to be poured out as a drink offering, um, it's worth it and I rejoice. He says, this is his thing. And even though his life would be sacrificed, the Philippians' faith would be a part of that sacrifice because they too have shared uh, and offered their love and support. And we can see this in chapter 1 when they're in partnership, close partnership with Paul in the gospel. And so Paul says, I'm going to offer it. Even if that's being offered, I will continue to rejoice. And this is what what I'm going to close with, that this whole package, this little text, and even all this letter is wrapped up. It has a wrapping. And that wrapping is joy. And um, our continual obedience, our working out our salvation, our witness to the world, our godly living is to be wrapped up in joy. If Paul can rejoice in the face of death and remain hopeful, then the Philippians should be able to rejoice along with him. Um, this is the joy I've spoke uh, before. It's not happiness. It's not the feeling of delight in the moment. That's not happiness. Joy is um, how I imagine this. It's like your inner smile. That even though you might be streaming, you might be bawling your eyes out in, in, in sorrow, in the hardship, you have this inner joy, inner smile. Because that joy is rooted in the future. That joy is heaven uh, perspective. And it's not saying to just be happy. You can be in grief. But deep down you are in joy. And I'm sure Paul is in grief at the prospect that he might be martyred. He, he will miss a lot of people. But he is joyful. And he looks at it in, in that perspective. The Christian life is hard. It is challenging. It is daily battling. But it is also and should be a life of joy. Again, joy rooted in the assurance of the future. So if take nothing else from what I've said. Continue what you've been doing. Um, keep on obe- obeying and making sure that it's lived out, this inward transformation. And, yeah, just take encouragement and comfort that uh, Paul gives us this morning. And so, um, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that it is your word that speaks to us, not mine. Um, it is a, like a double-edged sword. It cuts to the heart if it needs be. But Lord, it also encourages us and boosts us up. And, how, uh, and I pray, Lord, for this week even, for today even, give us a morale boost to keep on doing what we've been already doing. And if we are a complainy bunch, and if we are an argumentative bunch, will you correct that as well in your grace? Um, and so, Lord, may we do all this with joy, knowing that Jesus is our motivation. He is the one, the example to follow, and he has given his all. Shouldn't we do the same? And so, Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters. Help us to live united lives together, not bickering, not complaining. And so we should just encourage and one another in unity as we uh, look to the prospect of being a church together, all the more, um, no more crucial time than a church launch that we should be standing united. And so, Lord, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.